RMN Behaving Badly, a topical, political, and just as angry as ever podcast about mental health nursing in the UK. Your hosts are Stuart McKenzie and me, Ed Freshwater. Yes, after a long stretch where you thought the airways were safe, we're back with our idiosyncratic blend of misanthropy and Thatcher blaming as we dissect the mental health issues of the day with a dram in hand. Good evening, Stuart. How are you? And are you president of anything yet? No, I'm only self-appointed president of my little fiefdom here in Glasgow. <laughs> um, people's president. The people's president. I I have my... I, to be fair, I'm way down in the pecking order between my wife and my daughter and the cats. <laughs> um, but, four but to be fair, four. what I would say, Ed, Ed, it's now been several months since I've been under investigation for anything. Nice. So I'm doing okay. I'm doing yeah, okay. Yeah, that's I'm, good. We should. We should. Give I feel you a like I'm coming out hibern- hibernation. You know, I feel like I'm kind of you know waking up with the hedgehogs. That's because you live in Glasgow, and this is the first time the sun's been out, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know why people have this view that there's just some dreary weather up here. It's been a glorious day here in Glasgow. It was glorious in Ayrshire as I drove back to my wee fiefdom. Uh, and um, yeah, the presidential thing. Why did you bring up old wounds and re-traumatise me? Do you not have any trauma-informed understanding, Ed Freshwater? I do, but we're friends, so I choose not to practice it on you. All right, so you're my friend, not my CPN. So let me let me let me. <laughs> God, let me you are my... damn Stuart. If if I was your CPN, I would be expecting to get paid danger money for this gig. <sighs> well, as as one man said to me, a patient when I worked in Carstairs, it's not the big guys I worry about; it's the wee wiry fuckers like you. <laughs> well, there's I... the first bleep of the second series. Of the... <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I was quoting. I was quoting there. That yeah. wasn't. I was yeah, I still have to bleep it. to the situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let me let me turn it. How are things with you, Ed? Uh, as as well, you know, we have a, a very difficult uh, social situation with a with a little boy. Today, uh, the reason I've, I've poured myself quite a large measure of whiskey tonight, and uh, the reason is, uh, as we're recording this, it's the fourth anniversary of him being rushed into hospital with uh, to start his uh, treatment. So yeah, that's a little bit <laughs> hell. So um, oh, there's a second bleep of the night. Four years, uh, man. Yeah. So uh, what better situation to be in than to come on and have a wee rant with you about something that is not related to that? Well, listen, the very fact that you're back on, I have to say, we put me tweet out tonight. Yep. You know, um, uh, leukemia has tried to keep you down. The Tories have tried to keep us down. (laughs) Do you know, I I actually bracket them in the same sort of malignant nastiness level. well, I, yes, I there we are. We've come back with a load of centrist moderation after our break. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> feeling somewhat diluted here. I'm feeling... <laughs> so, no, it's lovely to be back. It is. And mm. uh, I, we're, now, we're now badging our hiatus as the pause between the first and second season. Did you see what we did there? <laughs> yes, yes, I know. We put a positive spin on it, much like we would do with a care plan. Um, Appears to have slept and, um, well. <laughs> Yes, appears to have slept well. Tonight, uh, or today, whenever you're listening to this, uh, we wanted to tackle um, something which has become a very hot topic in uh, the field of mental health practice, certainly in England and Wales, uh, in most recent weeks, uh, certainly sort of from mid-April onwards. And that's the topic of the high-intensity network. Now, 
I've got to admit that until a couple of weeks ago, I had never heard of this. And um, I don't feel that I'm in the slightest bit qualified to comment on it. And uh, as we spoke about it in our pre-production meetings, because we do have pre-production meetings, by which I mean a text, um, <laughs> Stuart goes, what on earth is this thing? And can you point me in the direction of it? So um, to expand our knowledge, uh, we've been joined tonight uh, by a top quality nurse and top quality lecturer, and I say that because he used to be my lecturer, uh, Will Marcotte, who's uh, joined us on the line from uh, whichever uh, glistening studio uh, you happen to be in tonight. Good evening, Will. How are you? Evening, Ed. Evening, Stu. Um, evening, Will. Yeah, it's uh, not really glistening, but uh, yes, it's oh, okay. a small bedroom. So people can't see, you can just make it up, don't worry. Okay, it's, yes, there's lots of glitter. <laughs> <Some Yeah>. glitter. <laughs> I'm in a bath of milk. <laughs> well, that bit right, of... We've hit the ground running. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Will. Uh, pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, as you know, I, I, I know you, Ed, very well um, from our days at university. Um, I'm... What am I doing now? I'm currently a senior lecturer in mental health nursing with the Open University. Yay! Um, yeah, big shout out to the Open. Um, formerly of Birmingham City University. Um, prior to that, lots of lots of stuff with people in CAMS usually. Um, so yeah, has CAMS always been in your background, and is that where you prefer to work? Yeah, um, I still do the odd shift now and then um, down in Birmingham. Um, but yeah, I think CAMS is where I found my, I guess, place within mental health nursing. I've been to, you know, lots of different, uh, you know, services, but it's always with kind of with many of the older adolescents and, and working with those that have mm -hmm. unfortunately been through some significant hardships in life that um, have meant that they've, you know, unfortunately had to come in towards mental health services. So, yeah, it's, it's yeah, CAMS has always got a special place for me there and, that's what I've always been passionate about, especially within teaching. I probably mentioned it quite a few times, you know, in, in you know, kind of lecturing days. Um, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's great. I think you, you're on with two other nurses who have uh, who both have very strong feelings about the, the need to provide uh, really good child and adolescent mental health services. And uh, but to get onto this high intensity network without going into too much detail about it um i suppose because there are a, a group of service users out there and hopefully we'll be interviewing them in the next week or so um who have responded to uh proposals and implementation ideas around the high intensity network um incredibly well they've put together this uh fantastically cogent argument uh critiquing the service and um for people who aren't familiar with it, I would like to direct them towards a, a website, stopsim.co.uk, uh, where some uh, brilliant people have put together uh, a very well-structured critique and listed the concerns um, of the use of this network and the um, associated mentoring, the sense, uh, what is it? Serenity Integrated Mentoring, mentorship. Uh, mentorship which, um, Sounds very nice and fluffy, um, but I think it, it's uh, there are some genuine concerns about 
how that fluffiness translates into practice. So could you tell us a little bit about how you heard about it and what your response to it is? Well, yeah, I wouldn't have heard for it uh, of it um, unless it wasn't for those people, those activists who had done such great work of, of making it so high profile on Twitter. Um, and it just grabbed my attention immediately because I'd never heard of it. How could such a yeah, such a significant change to mental health services across England and Wales be you know kind of pass me by or miss me? And I thought, well, okay, you know, I can't know everything that's going on. Uh, I don't profess to. But then when I started to ask colleagues, uh, you know, people who are still clinically around the country, that that I was getting kind of what's that? I never heard of it back. I started to really worry that there's these significant changes happening that it just something didn't add up that there was a lot going on here that um gave a great impression but wasn't oh how could it slip past the radar of so many mental health nurses or kind of be be out there in practice and just be done yet nobody realizing kind of what's going on where did this come from how did this originate and so that's what kind of got me looking at some of the kind of uh, the background to it you know, and obviously you mentioned it, you know, that, that stops and we've done some great work looking at, at uh, you know, the reasons why this is, doesn't work. But I guess from a mental health perspective, or a mental health nursing perspective, that there are kind of people working with this who might not be, uh, well, no, I'm probably wrong, who could be accepting of something that, that isn't right or that's not working for people just because it's a, it's a new way of working that suddenly we should be doing this and actually should we be doing it? Is it that great? Well, I, I think that's been answered by top sim. Mm. Um, what do we what do we know about it? We do, as I understand it, it's a uh, a way that community nursing teams would cooperate with the police yeah. and uh, address what they call high intensity users. So what um, what do they classify as a as a high intensity user? What, so I guess go back to what you said about in the middle word, the part of the serenity integrated mentorship is integration. So it, it, it ticks that box of integrated working for services. So rather than working in isolation, which happens quite a lot, it's we'll get people together. And that's no bad thing, but it's how it's done. And it's the consequences of that integration. And you said, you know, who's it for? Well, who's high intensity? And what the purpose is, is to... Um, uh, it, it's looking at reducing the frequency of section 136 use and bed occupancy and mental health act assessments for people who are seen as frequent attendants at say emergency departments or, or frequent uh, calls of uh, emergency services and uh, I guess at placing high demand on um, pre-hospital care and I don't want to jump straight to the cynicism part of this, but much of the high intensity networks, uh, kind of, uh, the, the media around it is, is uh, looking at reduction uh, of those uses of section 136, which is no bad thing, but it's, it's done on a cost basis. So it's about looking at reducing costs. And it's probably the expense. last motivation we want to have really, is it? Yeah, I don't think anybody ever went into um, 
you know, to, to making significant changes to care going, I know, I know, lads, we'll, we'll, we'll save money, we'll spend less money, but we'll make services better. Mm. You know, I, I don't think that's a realistic thing to do. So having your kind of focus as we're going to save you money by doing this is just incongruous with the idea of we're going to make things better for these people. Mm-hmm. And that's an immediate kind of mismatch of motives. Which is odd. I think there's, there have been sort of networks and alliances and uh, initiatives that have been launched nationwide and they've always opened up with we want to reduce suicide we want to reduce self-harm we want to reduce stigma um but very few have have sort of put it front and center this is going to be cheaper yeah and when when you get the basis of say the pilot studies that um were produced for uh initially around the kind of the sim model saying very little about the outcome for the person and more about how it's impacted the service and the cost of that service. I think alarm bells should be ringing there about, um, you know, us in the caring profession. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that the agenda that it is about cost saving and making sure that the money spent, it's uh, it's spent the right but I don't quite see that with this. And I wasn't sure how it got to this point of being, uh, you know, a national rollout was, was being mooted. You know, so mm. Bruce Keogh is quoted in their material as advocating for a national rollout and it had backing from uh, you know, NHS innovations and accelerator programs. But there's so little in the public domain to say anything about it or its outcomes or how it did what it did and where the evidence was for those cost reductions which aren't still there they may well have those but the the cost reductions that are shown are a little bit vague and i'm i'm no mathematician but <laughs> i struggle to um, kind of see where they're coming from and getting these cost savings and the extrapolation to the figures you know that they're talking about thousands hundreds of thousands but the original study was only ever done the pilot study was involving four service users and so when you're taking a study that had four service users or sorry, an initial project really that had four service users just to see what would happen if they did something differently to get it to be uh, embedded across at least 16 nhs trusts in the country there's two overseas uh, i think both in america and you know, and many more coming on board. I think British Transport Police also kind of have a, a sim model in, in it um, as well. You say, well, how did it get to that point? Where, where, so, was, where was the uh, oversight? So according to the, to the High Intensity Network website, which I've got open in front of me, it says in 2016, after a 15-month pilot, sim was adopted by NHS England for, quotes, national scale and spread and has since also been recognised as good practice by the National Police Chiefs Council, well known for their um, levels of mental health training and, and interventions, and Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary, Fire and Rescue. Um, 
Yeah, but Ed, but Ed, really you, lacking an endorsement from. If you, if, <laughs> if, if if you read one sentence down, it actually the following words appear, but it gets better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. All of our sim teams have joined forces to be part of the high intensity network, which ensures that all teams learn and develop together and rely on each other as a national community of practice. And all patients receive consistent care, even if they cross an NHS policing border. Policing border. Right. Policing border. Right. Oh, what? Oh. I, <laughs> I mean... I'm just, new to just this. in that sentence, but alarm bells, alarm bells, alarm bells. Yeah. I'm I'm new to this rodeo, so to speak, but what I'm not new to is when I read something which isn't driven by the empathic needs that we should be um, you know, putting at the front and centre of, of, of what people need. We've said on our pods on numerous occasions, Ed, um, all behaviour is communication. What, what what could be perceived to be negative, what could be yes. perceived to be self-injurious. Um, all behaviours communication and essentially I only had to read that opening snapshot and that and what we want to do is we want to shut down behaviour which is basically I mean we want to shut you, it down you say, you say shut down behaviour I might hear I want you to be quiet and compliant right but but what we're doing is we're we're saying I mean I I while Will was given that introduction there about where it came from I mean I I feel so ignorant to this that literally when you, you were saying to me you know let's get up and going again yeah yeah let's do it and you were talking about will coming on and and i was doing a bit of reading in the background of this i i was like have i missed something like have and you know, i'm not professing to be sat in my house on a saturday reading nursing journals but i do read right <laughs> and, I, and i and i do follow mainstream and professional specific and service user specific social media accounts because i think that's really important to kind of to try and have that balance it's one of the reasons we started the pod mm-hmm. and i'm like am i missing something here and i'm scrolling through various networks that i'm aware of and i'm like i'm just not I'm not seeing this as a thing in Scotland. You know, I'm not seeing this as a thing. And I'm scrolling through again and it's like, right, okay, we're engaged with over 40 police providers. So I went to some of those police people and I'm looking at their their police. There's no mention. This thing's quite, um, there's there's almost quite a, a creep. You know, there's an inertia which is hidden around this. And as Will pointed out, there's some very high level public figures who appear to be aware of it mm-hmm. but yet th- within the mainstream of our profession it doesn't seem now that just might be me but then when you're saying to me as well <laughs> that, you know up until two weeks ago and will who's a lecturer and you know i'm assuming does a bit more reading than you and i because you know we know that Will's preparing the future of mental health nursing to be a fully balanced and well-structured disciplined group of individuals um you flatter me. <laughs> well, you're doing this for free, Well, I've got to do something. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but there's a serious point here when the people who are having it done to them are having to actually come out and say something's not right. What was interesting on, on their, their website, um, the Stop Sim one, is that the Royal College of Nursing have taken a position on it. Now, I had to... I, I, I struggled to find the Royal College. It's true, the Royal College of Nursing do have a position on it, but I think organisations like the Royal College of Nursing have a moral obligation 
to be making their members aware of this. Mm-hmm. You know, to actually be saying, you know, there's we have links there, but but the, you know, if if you're an organisation with the with the heft of the RCN in professional practice, this is a massive issue. It's ethical, it's moral, it's professional. I'm, I'm, I'm reading this stuff around the, about the breach of GDPR within it, and I'm wondering how comfortable a nurse feels just opening up the case files of a patient and sharing that with a police constable. Yeah, I think that's really important that nurses uh, who are going to be a part of this, and it's not just mental health nurses, it could be nurses who work in emergency departments, it could be adult nurses. Um, you know, so it's not just, not just a field mental health thing this kind of breach of GDPR and I think it's important that the RCN were also um, kind of putting a, a kind of mild warning that this could be incompatible with the uh, the NMC code and I think that, that anybody who works in that service therefore needs to be fully aware that, that actually this might not fit in with our professional uh, kind of attitudes expectations and, and breaching that code is a serious consequence the, there's the rub uh, really there's more awareness of that i mean if if we are suddenly told to share information if we're told to engage in an intervention which we believe is inappropriate what are we supposed to do with that from a professional standpoint if and if we're expected to do um to get engaged in things where there's been a, a lack of co-production in the formulation of it, the development of it, and the implementation of it, what are we supposed to do then? Because these are these are very important professional issues. Yeah. I, I get that when you're perhaps working in, in some situations where uh, your input is to see the, the, the person as a bag of organs and, you know, they perhaps got a a ruptured spleen or something like that you, you know there is an intervention for that and you don't need to sort of develop that with the person you know you, you just say this thing is wrong we need to fix it these are the drugs this is the surgery but that's not the way mental health nursing works and that's that's not the way we're trained as as you know and I know that because you trained me that way <laughs> was we don't just do things to people we work with people not least because they've got a greater understanding. So, and this is this is what's true to This is one of the the most uh, opposite things I've come across to that that uh, philosophy or way of working mm-hmm. with somebody. It just goes absolutely against what <clears throat> I personally believe mental health nursing should be. I know that differs to other people. So we're all very different within mental health. Yeah, you know that's that's almost the beauty of it. But it's just so incongruous with what I believe we should be doing with people that I find it utterly incompatible with all of my values. And that's what got me so quite mm. pissed off about why, where did this come from? And, and Stuart used a great word about being ashamed. And I felt utterly ashamed as a mental health professional, as a mental health nurse, that my profession could be, a party to this and doing this to people who don't want it and pissing them off so much that they have to campaign against it. And they do that in isolation. They do that to the point where they're so angry and so 
hurt and and let down by what we do that they have to do that by themselves and it only only took them a passing kind of glance from my you know scrolling through twitter to notice that it's like what the fuck are we doing that's wrong absolutely i mean if and, we want to damage our profession anymore just keep doing that mm-hmm. i mean uh, we said before we started recording we spoke about um when it comes to mental health nurses day and that's that's a a, a thing that we run to promote and celebrate all that is good about mental health nursing profession but there are always comments on that day rightly so there are always comments from current service users and former service users who report that the input they received from mental health services was damaging that it was um objectifying of them that it was dismissive that it minimized their concerns and their experience that it was in many ways traumatizing um and if not traumatizing re-traumatizing re-traumatizing um that actually being engaged with mental health services made them worse and i think when we when we look at how um i've completely forgotten the word when 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 we look at how overbearing services can be and that whole history we have of doing things to people then this just seems like such a backward step yeah yes uh, it is it's totally backwards and it flies against everything that we're currently trying to do and mm-hmm. if we look at the recent review of the mental health act and mm-hmm. yeah whether that gets to to <laughs> be fruition and you know and i know it doesn't fully take into account what people who, who it's used against wanted but it was a step forward a step in the right direction to reduce coercive actions towards people yet this does it completely under the radar mm-hmm. and it's one of those things where you think it's by the back door it is coercion it is probably borderline illegal it's utterly wrong um and it's doing it in a way which makes it sound like it's okay because it's fitting in with, you know, it, the language has currency. It, it uses all the buzzwords. And by doing that, it is, oh, it, it, it's so much more disrespectful and it is utterly wrong that this is such a damaging thing to suddenly do when I guess so the other stuff, the other talk is about reviewing Mental Health Act. It's about trying to reduce, about you know being trauma informed it's about being more co-produced you know whatever that might be mm-hmm. yet this is just you know i'd said kind of a, a bullshit veneer over doing things to people that they don't want done because mm-hmm. we see it better because you know we, we know them better so we'll do this mm-hmm. and we're not going to acknowledge their their uh, actual human <laughs> human needs and wants mm-hmm. and just write it off as, as bad behavior so this this behavioral thing and Stuart mentioned this this thing about um behavior being communication which is which is really one of those things that we we live by um some of the some of the critique is suggesting that uh so the the model the the um serenity integrated mentorship uh is designed so that when somebody is really unwell um then there's behavioral um boundaries very strict boundaries on what is acceptable and uh from my reading of it and and from many people's reading of it 
it's suggesting that if a person presents in crisis, then this behavioural model or these behavioural boundaries could suggest that they would not be given, for instance, access to um, emergency departments, ambulance services, um, even if they're not presenting with uh, in mental health crisis, then the behavioural model might suggest that they wouldn't be given care in a hospital for a physical health condition. Yeah, and this is and, and, and this is argument that, that behaviour is attention seeking rather than its yeah. communication. Form. Yeah, it, it it's just you know, playing into stereotype views, typically of a person who's been given a diagnosis of personality disorder. You know, something that you know from <laughs> you know from my own career and from my own teaching is something that I routinely bang on about. And the use of the phrase, and I know a lot of people, and within you know, um, service use community, it's highly contentious. Um, and how we use that that term, and how it gets abused, and the people that that have that diagnosis, uh, and you can only see it is about those people with that diagnosis and trying to control those behaviours because they think that it's a good thing to put strict behavioural boundaries and and withdrawing care because they think that that's going to feed into those behaviours and, and keep that cycle going, which is utterly bonkers and goes against all the research evidence to suggest, mm. oh, how about just talking to somebody? Yes. <laughs> as to why they, you know, <laughs> why they might do what they do. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it's just unfathomable. It's almost taken a step back in time that, mm -hmm. that this notion of withdrawing care because they think it will stop somebody from, from calling emergency service is going to be a good thing. And well, I just if, don't if, understand it. Well, let's let's put that on a you know put a slight twist on it. If somebody thought that their house was on fire and phoned the fire brigade and they attended, and it turned out that it was smoke from a toaster or whatever, and actually their house wasn't on fire, but they were really distressed about it. If a week later their house was on fire and they called the fire brigade, the fire brigade wouldn't go. Now, we've warned you about this before and we're not going to, you know, we're not going to send an engine around and it doesn't matter how much you scream and holler about it. We're, we're not sending anybody around to put this fire out and, uh, you, you know, you brought this on yourself. It, it seems it's that, that it, that's the kind of analogy for it. Yeah, it's like, you know, if, if you keep coming to us for care, we'll just be mean to you so you'll stop coming. <laughs> uh, it doesn't really work like that. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't make sense. And so I'd really like to see if if that has actually worked. But there's no evidence because nothing's published about that. There's no outcomes to measure those things to see what the effect was. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of guesswork. You know, some people thinking this might be a good idea, but because it originated from people um, and no disrespect to them, and I'm sure they had extensive experience of working uh, in their situation, the police, with people in crisis, or a mental health crisis, rather, um, they thought, oh, no, we'll try this. But somehow it's got this mileage, but it wasn't ever born from a health service. And I think there's some kind of danger there that, you know, it's somebody else who doesn't have, say, expertise or has talked to somebody <laughs> who, who is in a mental health crisis to say, well, what would have helped, what would have been useful, or at least tried that had talked to them, thought this might be a good idea, realised it didn't work or needed adjustments and stopped it. It's okay to try things, 
but getting to the point where it's a national you know kind of uh, rollout for a service which should be adopted by so many and other places in different names so it's not called sim everywhere it, it might be under a different name in the trust if you're listening you know it's about if you heard the phrase high intensity users prick up your ears because there'll be certain um ways of working with those people based on um ideas that may be highly incompatible with with your working practice and the expectations um of your professional body now is that phrase high intensity user is that just uh, a remodeled more palatable way of saying frequent flyer which is something that you know gets thrown around in community teams and acute inpatient teams like like you wouldn't believe is it, it have we just changed the language but kept uh, a really sort of unacceptable judgmental idea about people yeah i think you're right um there's i never heard of that phrase until i started reading this material it, it just kind of seems like it's that pseudo technical language mm. that's added to stuff to give it some kind of kudos and it's all over you know the high intensity network material and it's about seeming as having kudos um mm. and that's that's another thing with it that i got a little bit knocks about but kind of worried by um so i'm going to digress slightly here but you mentioned earlier some of the things that they're kind of the people that have advocated for this service but they are uh, incredibly vocal or you know on the print stuff about the awards mm-hmm. and if you've been on the website the banners will show you all the stuff that's been lavished on this particular model and approach and again i'm thinking where's the oversight in this stuff who, who checked this stuff you know this has won multiple awards over the years uh, and uh i, I can't remember the top of my head but some uh, health and safety uh I'm, I'm sure there's a nursing one there's a hsj one yeah, hsj positive uh, practice and mental health nursing times award nursing winner times in 2016 um which is yeah. which is quite interesting because it was trialed in 2016 so that's that's something that won an award very quickly after being trialed um yeah, it, it's, it strikes me that was there time to collect data synthesize data um apply it extend it um do impact analyses on it and and so on the problem you have as well though is that the the development and the emergence of um crisis services off the back of the work done by the Sainsbury center for mental health in the mid to late 90s around intensive home treatment was another adaptation and you have a model here which actually in terms of if you say it quick enough you you can find an association with terms within mental health networks and mental health service provision which sit comfortably with mental health practitioners which sit comfortably with um, within ed teams who are aware of intensive support teams and intensive home treatment teams and hit teams so that so there's there's a, a synthesis of language there which i don't think is a mistake there's a deliberate um, adoption of of words which already have attraction or an inertia within our field of practice that, that we're comfortable with, you know. Yeah. And I think that's there's a, there's something deliberate about that. Will would you not agree? Yeah, I know completely. And I think that's one of the things probably why it has got the mileage it's got because it fits in with yeah. You know, I say it's this currency the language it uses and it's palatable and it's it seems nice and it but it also has an impact that that I guess people who are commissioning or in charge of these huge bodies, which I don't understand at all, will 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 kind of be keen to want to take on board. 
you know, they'll think they'll be attracted to that. And because it's got this mileage and it's got these awards and it seems palatable to people who are going to be delivering it to, and they have psychiatrists on board and, you know, that, that kind of, again, it's that double appeal. It's, it's almost a win-win, but when you start to kind of scratch the surface of it, actually there's something I, I think quite dark and worrying about what's going on. I don't want to sound like some kind of conspiracy theorist here, but there's. <laughs> Hang on while I get a foil hat. Okay. I think you're absolutely right. Well, I think when you look at the, if you look, if, if we trace the roots of the commissioning model in health and social care, particularly that, I, I'm not an expert by any means of what takes place south of the border. I know, understand the Health and Social, health and social Care Act and the bills in Scotland and how that integration framework um, has moved in it. And I, you know, I'm comfortable with that and I understand the, the agenda around that. But commissioning is a whole different level. And when you have a small pot of money um, to, you know, once you've hived off whatever money's gone into your primary care services and your general practice and, you know, your public health and whatever else is left, and you've got, um, I mean, even reading even reading the, the High Intensity Network's um, website where it says, did you know that 70% of this population are like are, are a small part, a small number of people. Well, let's shift the blame on a minority. Let's do a little bit of othering and, and shift it over there. So the narrative ceases to become about these are the people most in distress, most troubled, most in need of help. But what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to strip back their access to service and we're going to dress that up in a framework or a model um, and then what we're going to do is we're going to take a little bit of all of these different services and if we can get a couple of views of psychiatry I'd be really interested to see what the CQC had to say about it and I'd also be really interested to see if there was a positive because I don't know if is there a positive position from the Royal College of Psychiatry I say that with sincerity because mm -hmm. I'd be, I, I actually value as, as having managed services which have been through accreditation with the Royal College of Psychiatry and peer reviewing and seeing the depth that's that's gone into um, through that process, I, I place a, a huge amount of trust in that process, actually, uh, because sometimes, you know, opening up your service to bring people in who might not work in it um, and hearing their view from the outside really helpful, um, along with the views of patients, along with the views of others. But I would be really, really keen to see if there'd been any peer evaluation <laughs> Of, of a service like this. Hi, here well, comes I believe well. it's not being. <laughs> no. So I'll, I'll, I'll share a couple of quotes, if I may, from from, uh, from one from the RC side, cause, and, and I bring this in now because, because you just mentioned it, but on 7th of May uh, this year, there was a, a statement from the Royal College of Psychiatrists which said the high-intensity network was established to address an area of need. In light of recent media reports of criminal sanctions, we welcome the opportunity to review how it's being used and to ensure there is appropriate information and oversight in place. We also need to ensure there's good practice in the relationship between mental health services and the police, which would benefit from a standard and centralised operating model. A uh, centralised operating model is one of those, oh, God, that sounds like a bad idea. Um, but there's also a quote from uh, Dr. Geraldine Strathdee, who's the National Clinical Director for Mental Health at NHS England. And she was quoted as saying uh, that she has been impressed way beyond expectation with the incredible hard work, absolute rigour, systematic training and delivery of the SIM content through its own uh, platform. 
quotes, it's not often I recommend a program without reservation, but this is one. And I think so when in summary, in summary, we have the Royal College of Psychiatry saying, need to know a bit more about this. We'd welcome the opportunity to review that and understand it. And we've got a, a group of service users who are saying, <laughs> who've been able to pull apart some yeah. of the rigour and the, and the uh, statistics behind it. In, in a couple of weeks without any kind of, you know, team I'd, I'd supporting like them or funding those things. If she has that data, I'd be really interested to see it, mm-hmm. as would everybody else, because if she, if she genuinely knows something that everybody else doesn't, let's see it. Well, it sounds like the Royal College of Psychiatry would quite like to see it. <laughs> yeah. right. Well, well let, <laughs> let's say... I didn't know about it until the, uh, in early mm. May. Well, let's say there is this thing called a duty of candor. And if you've got information on the efficacy of an intervention and you choose not to uh, share that information, that's kind of problematic from a professional capacity, isn't it? That's one of the things I started kind of banging on about, really, from day one, from when I heard about this, was, was where's, <laughs> we need the information to make a judgment on this. You know, if you want to be really be a devil's advocate and kind of sit on the fence, really, and say, well, hold on, you say it's bad. Don't get me wrong, I think it's bad. But if people are, you know, is there evidence to suggest that there's, there's, you know, some mileage with this? Where is it? Can I see it? That's all I want. Mm -hmm. I just want to know. I think there's the other side of this, which I was interested in when we were doing our our kind of um, warm-up. There's the moral bit for me, and there's the ethical bit in my registration as a nurse. And... And I know I've been a nurse who has been asked by a, a police a member of Police Scotland Services to, so can you show me that? No, I can't. You know, I understand my responsibility to the patient and I understand my responsibility to protect the integrity of that information and, um, and their confidentiality. The moment you take the the step that you can allow someone not of a health setting because you know there's been lots of work done around consent well yeah ed we, we know in mm-hmm. mental health service oh, place yeah. where we we lived in the world of implied consent or for like <laughs> ever <laughs> right <laughs> well you're in a hospital so you've got implied consent we can do whatever <laughs> the hell we like to you <laughs> right you might not be detained but, you know, and we all knew that phrase in mental health services, the doctor would do an assessment. I, I've seen it many times in my years as a, as a staff nurse and whatnot. Not detainable unless they go to leave. Oh, sorry. What was that? Can you put that in the notes? No. Yeah. <laughs> if you're not going to commit that to the notes, I think you would suggest. And it's almost that we don't want to commit to it by showing you actually what the bare bones of this is. You know, but the moral and ethical imperative is... Um, that actually we want to do is we want to reduce the contact these people have with services because we reckon they're really difficult to deal with. But why not start from the point of view of trying to understand their behaviour and training people to help them with their behaviour? Yeah. <laughs> right? And set up a really nice holistic team where we bring police in and we say, you know, that distressed person in cells who's acting out and they're like really dysregulated and you thought they were drunk and in actual fact, you know, they're not at all. This is someone really, really distressed. I bet they assaulted two officers because they're really scared um, and then the you know the police surgeon who in Scotland is usually a general practitioner will come down and we maybe have a very varied view of psychiatry I mean I can imagine how that could go horribly wrong horribly quickly I mean some of that denying people access to physical health assessment predicated on we're doing the right thing for them mm-hmm. I don't know how that would sit with an ED physician for example 
Sorry, you were, sorry, you're saying that it's contraindicated because they're a bit angry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Wasn't aware we yeah. couldn't do a CT head scan because they're angry. Mm -hmm. Some of the case reports from their own material show that, that when somebody was denied care, they then overdosed afterwards. But 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 what I read from there from that open from that that material, and I, I haven't read a couple of articles surrounding it now, but was that actually what they're saying is that was that was a self-fulfilling prophecy anyway. It was going to happen. It's okay. So you know we're absolved of any any problems or guilt because of uh, it was an expected care, outcome yeah. because these type of people do these type of things oh. anyway. Yeah. If we say no to helping them, they're going to then go and do something. And that's. Them. That's what bothers me, because if you look yeah. at a harm reduction methodology and you look at a trauma-informed approach, it's, it's, it's in total um, yeah. contrast. It doesn't, it's night and day. I mean, this could potentially kill somebody. I, 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 I would... If not, as, it has already. We don't know. As a, as, a, as a mental health nurse of over 20 years now, I would suggest that this, this type of approach is as significantly dangerous as poorly applied physical restraint mm -hmm. when you yeah. have people restraining individuals without the appropriate training the appropriate skill set and the appropriate um oversight debrief yeah and yeah. reporting and monitoring you know this is exactly where you arrive at and and we know that we need that oversight over the appropriate application of management management of violence and aggression yeah but here we're actually doing it in a non-invasive way. That's how it feels to me. It feels like a very confrontational, a very stacked against the odds against the person at the centre of care. I mean, to be the other side of it is when you read through the the material on um, that's pro the model, there's a real lack of the focus on care. Yes. <laughs> And that's what I think is it's, it's totally lost sight of its purpose. And I've got no doubts the original bit. And if you read the original pilot study, there's a lengthy introduction from uh, Paul Jennings, the guy that, that created this, you know, about it, his efforts to make things better for people in crisis. But that just veers sharply away from, yeah. from care. And it's know, almost that, like the bit that we have was the unintended consequence. Mm, yeah. And, and that, that could be profoundly damaging, you know, in more, and I've talked about the damage for our profession, but really it's about the human lives that could potentially be lost because of this or have been lost. And again, we just don't know. Re-traumatization, you know, and rejection. Yeah. Working uh, with individuals with, you know, with, with um, personality disorder and, and, you know, that constant rejection and that constant rebuttal and mm. that sense of self-worth, mm. you know, we, we all, we, we've yeah. got extensive experience of working with children, young people in this virtual room. And what really worried me, even more so than the other stuff on, on that, on their High Intention Network webpage, is that the three quarters of the way down, there's something about uh, working with children. And if you play the video, he puts a call out basically to say, we haven't tried it with children. I'm paraphrasing now. We haven't tried it with children, young people, but we'd really like to. So if anybody wants to get in touch to try and, uh, you know, pilot a scheme in, in cams, please do so. And, and I just think, no, no, dear God, no, please. This is the worst idea you could do, putting those kind of behavioural boundaries, that coercion, that, that potential damage onto somebody who's coming to services at such a young age where you know, we all know that, the circumstances for that, this would just be so wrong.
By the time mm-hmm. you're in a tier three service as a child or a young person, there's a, there's an acceptance. Something is far from where we would like it to be. Yeah. <laughs> and adults often are um, a contributing feature as to why our young people end up requiring an aspect. Now that's not only the blame. There's there's many 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 children coming, and you know. Th- the situation is not about trauma. It's not about the prevalence of um, deprivation and out social outcomes impact on mental health. We know that. But there's also the other side of that. We know that there are. But to be able to just say we would welcome involvement around that, you know, there's actually, you know, I say this from a position of of, of development um, based on an investment in CAMS that's been announced in Scotland in the last two weeks. We've not really invested in unscheduled care services for children and young people, crisis services, liaison services, the way that it's been invested in adult services. And actually that's, when you look at it, a glaring omission (laughs) to just focus on the adult end and assume that CAMS could pick up everything. Mm. Now's the time for CAMS services to actually say, right, what does that look like for us? Not how do we keep these young people out of services. It's like how do we help? Them? See, when they come, how do we make it child and young person friendly? Yeah, and that's uh, thing. You, you're right because uh, there's so much. Well, I won't say so much investment, but there was investment in crisis service in adults because it's basically reactive service. Yeah, but when it comes to children, young people, we know that suicide is the biggest killer uh, mm-hmm. in it's kind of young adults and end of teens. Uh, we know that. There's more presentations in most departments and pre-hospital care for young people year on year. It is absolutely uh, gone yeah. up over the last 10 years. And, and look so, at the exponential rise in eating disorders as well yeah. amongst young people. I think if, if those people are in crisis and it's pre-hospital care, what worries me is this could fit the bill. This could be taken up and people could see this and go, hold on. I, you know, I run an acute trust and I've got lots of people who are ringing up my service in crisis and using a lot of man hours and it's all mental health stuff. And we know that CAM service is incredibly limited throughout the four nations, mm-hmm. that there are limited beds, there are limited crisis services, where it's just CAM's community services. So what kind of scares me is that, hold on, this is a crisis service that could be well adopted because it is, you know, nationally recognised, won awards, high profile, well, mm-hmm. not in our community, but, you know, it, it, it's being pushed out there. So there's a potential for that so in, in some ways i'm like oh god well mate it's not happened but looking at statistics for young people's mental health and the crisis within that in itself i i, I worry that that this kind of coercive care which would be so damaging to anybody let alone a young person could potentially get taken yeah up. and and for kids it would be setting them up for to fail forever because their first contacts with mental health services would be authoritative adults saying no and denying them any kind of therapeutic engagement at a moment when they're really distressed. And what that does right there and then is tells them, do not come to us for help. Do not come to us for a sympathetic ear. Do not come to us, um, you know, just it, just don't even bother. Well, You're it sends, too much it trouble. Sends the wrong, so. It sends the wrong message, doesn't it? That, yeah. you know, if, if you'd fallen off your bike and you were in distress because you'd hurt your leg and you were 14, we're there for you. 
right? You might have been trying to do a jump across a road and, but you know, you may have been doing something out with your skill set and competence, right? And you may have done it out of naivety or being, you know, egged on by your mates. So mm-hmm. your risk assessment was poor, but it doesn't matter because you broke your leg or you've done something to yourself that we and we and we will fix this. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm 14, I hate myself, I don't understand my peers, I don't understand my family. The only time I feel anything is when I go and hurt myself or I steal alcohol and drink it. Um, or I'm getting into trouble, or I'm getting and that. Um, oh, well, I'm really sorry. Mm. You know, tough. You know, go and speak to your GP. But I can't yeah. speak to you because tonight I hurt myself. And it, and that narrative is is acting out across the UK as we sit here. And and the pandemic, to be really clear, um, on the impact that the pandemic is having on children and young people, because you know, as much as we'd like to think that they're fabulous and resilient and they love tech and uh, sitting at home playing their Xboxes and talking to each other in Zoom has been fabulous for them. Well, the great, the, you know, the, the news that the society here is it's not been great for them. It's been bloody awful for them, to be quite frank, to be denied access to their peers, to be denied access to a mainstream education or access to education in a way that's meaningful because we know that they need that contact. We're, we've stored up in that pandemic all of those problems where these young people could then, as they're not having their needs met, be acting out in a way which could be perceived as negative and meet resistance from a service like this because they've become a high-intensity user because they've had three or four contacts. And arbitrarily, a team have made uh, a decision, which to me in my reading, and I'll admit it's, you know, I've, I've read three articles, I've read their page, I've read the Stop Simpy. But, but I'm not seeing a credible way of making a consistent decision other than number frequency of presentation and number of services involved. So when you hit those thresholds, arbitrary decisions are made without actually a focus on what the needs are. And that just, that, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't, I wouldn't like to think we would model care plans like that. Even when we've mm-hmm. dealt with people who are high risk to themselves and others, and we create these um, multidisciplinary, multi-agency care plans, I can hand on heart say in the last couple of years, and before, but, but moving consistently, that it's always about how does this help the person? That I'm not feeling that narrative back from what I've read. I don't know about you guys. Well, I think we can probably say in summary that we're sitting on the fence. Would that be fair? <laughs> <laughs> If the fence is really, really low and has one side, yes. Yes, that's it. A one, one-sided one yeah. fence sitters. Well, guys, thank you so much for a wonderful chat tonight. Um, Will, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for reaching out to us on Twitter and, and offering to speak on this issue. And uh, Stuart, it's just been magic to catch up with you again. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me. It's been, uh, it's been good. Good. I, I hope everybody enjoyed a wee whiskey. Yes, yes, the Glenlivet, the bottle is empty. I'd held on to that dram for our first pod back. <laughs> Fresh bottle, next pod. <laughs> Fresh bottle every pod, I'm sure. <laughs> Please don't expose society to my whimsical ways. <laughs> Thank you for listening to RMN Behaving Badly. We're delighted to be back for a second series where we take the novel approach of managing new problems with the same old maladaptive process of whinging about it to anybody that will listen. 
Our special thanks to our guest, Will Marcotte. You can find him on Twitter, at Billy Marcotte. He's a great guy, and I'm not just saying that because he gave me a really high mark on my first ever university assignment. The show is at RMNBB Podcast. Stuart is at Stuart McKenzie, and I'm at Ed Freshwater. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. Just search and follow RMN Behaving Badly. Our website at rmnbehavingbadly.co.uk is where you'll find links, show notes, our blog, and all of our previous episodes completely free and now also completely out of date. Having said that, some things never change. Services are stupidly underfunded, nurses are woefully underpaid, and conservative politicians are still the very worst examples of humanity on the planet. What can we do but keep challenging things that could so easily be changed if only they had the desire to make life better for Britain's most marginalised communities? We've got to topple the elite. Friends, we lead the revolution tonight. Join us on the crusade. Stand up all victims of oppression. There is power in the factories and power in the fields. And Ah, that feels better. The fine music you're listening to is provided especially for us by the Barstool Astronaut. You can find his work on Spotify and at barstoolastronaut.com. Please listen, get his merch and say hi from us when you do. This humble podcast is made possible by our patrons who, as well as being incredibly tolerant of our so-called production schedule, demonstrate their discerning good taste by providing a bit of cash every month that enables you to listen without adverts and means we're able to book some great acts for the live shows. In particular, our thanks go to Sally O'Brien, Sam Richards, Natalie Brooks, Alison Upton, Katie Sutton, Paula Shields, Nat Freighter, Phil Noyes, Billy Drysdale, Shelley Louise, Tom Bolger, Alicia Harley, Denise Kelly, Cecilia Wigley, Maureen Dolan, Daisy Hughes, Becky Hoskins, Lauren Kennedy, Jenny Lee Sims, Lee Orton, and Dave Dawes. If you'd like to join them in the singular honour of having your name read out in the credits, just go to patreon.com forward slash RMN behaving badly. That's it for this episode. We hope to bring you more on the High Intensity Network and the Stop Sim campaign within the next couple of episodes. I'd recommend listeners visit stopsim.co.uk to learn more about this most concerning subject. Once again, our sincerest thanks for downloading and listening. We look forward to bringing you loads more as soon as life allows. Until then, stay well, stay safe. Talk to you soon.